You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Grindsworthy. Charlotte, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. So happy to meet you. Okay, let's just dive into exactly what you're creating at Everyday Humans. For people who aren't super familiar with what you're building, could you give us a bit of an intro into the brand? So so who's Everyday Humans? So what we are, we are a pro-planet beauty brand that makes sunscreen with skincare benefits designed for everyday humans. So what we do is that we make better for you ingredients with planet-friendly packaging and ethical practices. And what we want to do is to keep your sunscreens inclusive and responsible, all for under $30. So I guess the beginning story was just, I mean, it's a pretty stupid story, but it's like, I'm in my late 30s at the moment. And I used to tan, I mean, I'm from the Nogsies. I used to tan a lot in my teens. Like, I think same. you're Australian, same, same, you know, same. so you get it. You're like, ah. you're five, you know, and it, actually, Yes. freaking olive oil whatever like you're like you want to get tanned it's mm-hmm. like that whole era and now regrets. I'm now yeah massive regret so now I'm, I'm sort of like in my 30s and I really do see the first sign of aging and I was like dude I wish someone had told me earlier the importance of taking care of my skin and the most vital weapon against wrinkles is sunscreen so as a busy human you know you're like you don't think about that step and like what we wanted to do is that because sunscreen is such a chore, you just like, it's like a nagging mom thing. Like what if we can actually make sunscreen, not just like a must have step at the end, but incorporate into your daily routine so that it integrates like seamlessly. So what we do is make better for you formulations with sustainably sourced and upcycled ingredients. So, you know, we are certified plastic neutral, certified climate neutral, neutral, and like our entire portfolio uses 100% recycled plastic or biodegradable patching, packaging. So it's like really safe and kind to the planet. So yeah, wow. I mean, what we really want to do is to make, you know, sunscreen for the Gen Z and I guess I call them zillennials. So it's like 25 to 35, that kind of position, positioning where you're just, you know, maybe out of college, you know, you, you kind of need to graduate from your drugstore stuff, but you don't want to spend stuff on like a Le Mer or anything. So you just want sort of an in-between. So we make like an authentic and relatable positioning with an affordable price point that has currently not been really served in sort of the you know, traditional sunscreen market. Oh, okay. There is so much I want to talk about in there, but first let's give people a bit of context. I think it's always awesome to hear what your background is professionally and how you came to entrepreneurship, because we have all different kinds of backgrounds and stories on the show. And I think that it just, you know, really shows that anyone from any background can kind of do this if you've got the right idea and, um, you know, you're savvy. So tell us about your career. How did you get to entrepreneurship? So my first job ended up in investment banking. So I was working, actually, my first job was KPMG. I was in M&A due diligence for a year. And then afterwards, I worked at Macquarie, which is an Australian investment bank and Credit Suisse to do equity, capital markets and syndicate, which is just basically IPOing companies. Uh, we, I market companies that go on IPO. So that's what I huh. did. So um, I did that and I think I did it for, until I think until I was 27 and I was just like, oh man, <laughs> like Brian <laughs> is like tough and I just wanted to take the plunge and I wasn't senior enough to have, we call them golden handcuffs, like because my salary wasn't like extreme that I can just leave. I just decided to take the plunge and join a startup and just move away from corporate life altogether. And I, gosh, I think I changed careers like a thousand times. Like it's crazy. So it's been like a decade or so. So it's like I started off in building social communities with an app. I started a magazine before. I sold digital billboard ad spaces. I work in operations for a high-end jewelry company. 
And then I ended up like picking up like random like consultancy jobs for like, you know, marketing and distributing in indie brands and just like went through this whole thing. And what I found, I think my strength is really like, I really love entrepreneurship. I think that's what it is. Like it gets me really excited to build something from nothing. And I found that I really, really like young customers. Like I think selling to young people is my thing. And I just like plunge right into it. And that was 2017, 2018, when I start the first iteration of my brand. But my family is in, you know, sustainable packaging. So like my dad ha has a material science company huh. that creates like, you know, solutions for plastic waste. So sustainability is such a huge part of my life that I was like, well, it, well if I could create my own brand, surely I want to make a sustainable brand. So I guess it's like sort of like a family thing. I want to dig into like some of that stuff around um, sustainability for sure. But but first, something that you said that was really interesting to me is that you um, feel most comfortable like creating a brand or marketing to a younger consumer. And I think a lot of people get hung up on creating products for a demographic that's not them. And so I'm wondering like, why do you think that is? And like, also why is that consumer different to like how you and I might shop in our... Um, I think the younger customer has, a, they know, I think... I th the word woke is not a nice word anymore, but I think mm. younger customers really want authenticity and the representation of the brand. So maybe a millennial or an older person's like, hey, if a celebrity talks about it, the press mentioned about it, and I have a couple of friends talk about it, I'll probably buy it. And I've seen it in a store, I'll probably, yeah, I'll, I'll freaking try it, right? Whatever. You don't really do the due diligence on the eth like the ethnic, you know, so not the the, the sort of uh, ethical practices mm -hmm. there, if they actually contribute to, you know, causes or like, do they actually care about, you know, being pro-planet? So I think what, these are all things that I personally care about. And I realize like the newest set of consumers, they want a brand that has a bit more meaning than just sell, 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 fast, 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 and like easy peasy, pick it up, you know, and they want to buy a brand that actually means something and resonate to them on a sort of a on a personal level and I think that's the difference between sort of like a I, I, I wouldn't say it's more it's more a mindset as opposed to an age so we always call it a Gen Z Zillennial brand no it's actually a mindset of like hey I, I want a brand that means something to me deeper than the product itself I want it to be part of like my interior or my personality that reflects what I choose or how I live life. In terms of the channels and where to reach them how to talk to them are you heavy on TikTok? Are you doing SMS marketing? What are the ways that you're kind of reaching this customer? I mean, we started off as a pretty wholesale heavy brand. So I come from a traditional background. So for me, it's just like distribution is really key. So we first, when we launched the brand, we already secured Sephora and Ulta. So it was really fortunate that, you know, we have such great retailers to back us up. And of course, say, like, hey, now that we're in these awesome retailers, like how do we speak to people? So I think you asked me like, what is my launch tactic at the very beginning? So we really launched at the worst time, like May, 2020, beginning of COVID, two weeks after Black Lives Matter. And we just got these two big accounts. We're like, oh crap, you know, like how are we gonna do this in a digital environment? And we were really bootstrapping and we didn't have a budget on paid ads and all that stuff. So I was like, okay, I have a lot of inventory. So maybe what I'm gonna do in the most cost-effective way is just freaking thin. Send stuff to people. So that was what I did at the beginning. It sounds really like, like whatever, but like that was like I just seeded a lot. So I started off with like a really big repository of like micro influences. Like we're like, okay, we know who our cohorts of people are, and then we like build out you know a database with like you know people with the 
you know, like the micros, you know, under 10,000 and the, the mid-weight under 50,000 and the macros, like whatever, like so on and so forth. And what we did was just reach out to them and be like, hey, we got a new brand. Like, do you want to receive a product? And we didn't really have like, I mean, I guess we're, we're not super savvy with paid. So we're like, oh, we just want to send your product and see how it goes with no strings attached. And we didn't even ask for a commitment. And we really spend a lot of time with an unboxing experience where we like make it really like exciting and you know, colorful and like really Instagrammable. To, at that point, not TikTok. TikTok wasn't that big, but like just like we want to create an experience where if you get the box and so you really want to share it and we were able to do so. So we send up like, I think like two, 300 boxes like for for like each month during the launch three months and the response was so good because we just spent a lot of time on making it exciting and that people want to share and we just got a lot of organic sort of like seeding or like organic word of mouth from that and it just kind of like snowballed from there you know it's it's a trial and error and you need to it's kind of like going on dates right so i i guess i did go on like 600 dates <laughs> so and then you ended up with like a few good ones and you're like oh these are really nice you can build a relationship and then you just sort of start from there you know are you finding that influencer gifting and influencer partnerships are still a big part of your marketing strategy now or has it kind of shifted no 100 yeah. percent. i think like I, don't, I think like influencer marketing is a must-have you cannot not work with influencers but i think what's different from maybe like a couple of years ago and now is that influencers now have many tiers you've got your micros or even nanos which are like really just everyday people but they just really want to share and they just really want to talk about the product and then you've got like actual influencers who have a little bit more following and but they still have a very small audience and and they can really have a high engagement within the community you've got the macros that gets a lot of eyeballs so now the tiering is different and the way you play the strategy is really different previously it's maybe just one kind of influencers you just got people with eyeballs or whatever it is now it's like you need to when you do influencer strategy there's just so many ways to slice and dice the data how you're how you're writing the briefs how you're spending the budget and how you're building those relationships and it gets a little bit more complex Interesting. I love hearing you talk about that. And also like the different ways to like slice the data as well. I think that a lot of people kind of like just go in there and they think, oh, they've got X amount of followers and they like beauty. So I'm just going to gift them. (laughs) No, that's not the way. And I think it's also like, I think it's also knowing your audience as well. So obviously for me, it's like, I need to talk to people who love sunscreen and, and like in skincare, but like once you sort of hit that demographic, you also need to test and learn others. So let's say maybe Oh, uh, you know, generally, obviously, outdoorsy people is something that we should speak to. So it's like you need to create a test and learn approach to know, like, besides, you know, your core audience is what other places you can hit and then try and test. And like, you know, it's just, just like a constant search of humans, like kind of resonating with your brand. So if you know who you are, it's really easy to find those people. But if you don't know who you are and you're like, I'm making it something for everyone. Yes, my brand's for everyday <laughs> humans, but we don't make it for everyone because not everyone's going to love you. That's just how it is. Yeah. So you just kind of need to know who you're not as well more you know you need to know a lot about who you are but you also really need to know who you're not I think that's really important how are you like recording externalizing those learnings collating that information where does that go and how are you like communicating it to team members or keeping it for yourself and making those like inferences from the information like what is that process and what kind of documentation are you creating I mean, we, you're asking me about resource recommendations. So we build an entire company off Notion. So it's like a really robust workplace that we brainstorm, build strategy. It's like a central repository of information that we use. And then so it's like when we have team, every single call is recorded. 
or like at least we have call notes on every single meeting, every strategy is play, put in place. And it's like, and we have a test and learn approach, meaning like we, every month we look through the data and see, hey, okay, this is working. This isn't like, what are we going to shift our budget? How are we going to see that? So every month we review it. And then obviously on a weekly basis, we do team check-in. So, I mean, because we're a remote working team, so we talk a lot on the phone. <laughs> so, and in order for us to not have all those thoughts lost, we put everything into one place. So it's just, so everybody can refer back should they get confused. So yeah, we have like mm. weekly brainstorms, uh, you know, there's just a lot, like every department have their own like version of their sort of like brainstorming uh, or like we call it like whiteboarding sessions. So, so that you can like throw out ideas and say, Hey, um, this week we want to, you know, uh, talk about, you know, social media, like what have you seen lately? So we have like, you know, not a trend Monday, whatever we, we don't have a name for it, but it's like, Hey, like, let's like this week we need to throw in some ideas and we capture all of them where we, we have a shared sort of like Instagram account where we paste cool things that we like and we just chuck them all in. Mm. And then when we have this repository of information, then we take it and be like, hey, remember Charlotte shared this thing or like this other team member shared this thing in this database. Let's pull it and like take advantage of it and like maybe apply it to one of the strategies. So that's sort of how we do it. But Notion is like where the thinking comes and the strategy comes. And then afterwards we use Asana where when the thinking is complete, then we do project management and task mapping with a you know responsible party, like an RP call it an RP and like a timeline. So it's like really structured. So n things don't get lost. So there's always like thinking, once thinking is complete, it goes into a project, project gets tasked. Okay. I would love to just like follow you for a day and understand how you're using these different it's tools. It's pretty nerdy. Sounds <laughs> it sounds like so well organized. I think a lot of people are really lost in this creative process and they're not, um, yeah, they're definitely not following that kind of structured approach. That sounds awesome. And I also love Notion. Notion is the best. Yeah, it changed Such my life. Like, it really changed my life. There's a, also like a bunch of free courses that you can do online as well. And like they've got amazing templates if you're just getting started. But anyway, I want to shift gears and I want to talk about um, wholesaling. And you are in Target, Ulta, Sephora, somewhere else as well, uh, Beauty Bay. Um, and I want to understand like how does a brand go from – an idea into this mass distribution? Is it really just these buyers and category managers are finding you through your influencer posts? Are you doing lots of outreach? Are you working with a an agent or a distributor? How does that work and how has that all come about? I think we're really lucky because we're just in this like, like I think the right time in the right place. So I don't really pitch that much. Like we get a lot of inbounds. So we're just really fortunate to have that interesting place where people are actually looking for millennial, zillennial sunscreens for some odd reason, you know, just for the past couple of years. And people just find us on social and they're just like, hey, we're the buyer. I was like, are you really the buyer? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, it is really the buyer. I was like, it's like, you know, it's shocking sometimes. And, you know, we don't really do a lot of outreaches, but, you know, and we don't have an agent or anything. It's just us with a PowerPoint you know, and that's pretty much it. So I came from the Target Accelerator program. So I graduated in 2019 where pre-COVID, where we had in real life uh, accelerator style. So I was one of 10 brands that got picked in 2019. And I was like the only Asian person. And I was also the only non-American in the program. So that was really cool. When I went there, I was like, mm -hmm. wow, like my eyes were open because I haven't lived in the States for so long. So like half of the things I'm like, oh, wow, you know, I freaking don't know. Like, I don't know Amazon. You're like, you don't know Amazon? I was like, I actually don't. <laughs> like, it's like, like random culture shock and like going through that program and learning what 
what it takes to win in big box retail, like really sort of gave us the confidence to build. So that's why I started from scratch again. And I was like, okay, I know what it takes to win. Now we're going to start all over again, build everyday humans. And, and then hence we were able to go to market with really a big couple of big retailers to start. So you are doing SPF products with like skincare benefits and I'm seeing a lot of, I don't know, like this kind of like shift towards a lot of body care products that have skincare like ingredients and skincare like functionality and makeup now with skincare functionality, what Euphoria doing is really cool. And I'm just like, how are you thinking about this trend? And do you see any white space in terms of you know, similar categories or other kind of products that haven't been innovated and that could use like that skincare tilt to it that you think is like quite interesting. I think, and I'm putting you on already, the spot. Yeah, I think everything everything's done. <laughs> I mean, I think there's still a lot of opportunity in hair care because there are quite a few players mm. now that's coming abroad, but maybe there are more room to play and like sort of functional hair care because I think what they're saying hair is the next skincare. It's like another category yeah. of toothpaste, you know, like, you know, those everyday items where toothpaste can also be potentially a place to play which I have friends who are doing it awesome brands and you know I think it's just like interesting to see that you know as you open your bathroom cabinet like each and every one of these FMCG brands can be taken out and rebranded mm-hmm. make it a little bit more authentic a little bit more interesting a little bit more multi-purpose to uh, and be able to replace so yeah interesting yeah hair care with skincare like properties that's really interesting because I guess you look at the I look at the hair care space at the moment and it does seem like there's a lot going on, but there's a big Aussie brand. What's it called? Monday? The Aussie brand. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Like we're seeing this shift in beauty altogether. So like skincare, body care and hair care where we spent, I don't know, five years, maybe really drilling down on what's not in the product, you know, like it's safe because these things aren't in there. And I think that that's table stakes now. So that now we're back in this kind of marketing era of, but we're adding all of these things in, look at all the cool ingredients that are in here. Look at like the actives that are in this product, which I think is really interesting. But I think the other thing is supply chain, uh, I call it supply chain sustainability. I think a lot of people are trying to be sustainable, but it's really difficult to do so because you need to really start from the very beginning. So we're just very fortunate that we always built a brand with that foundation. And that's why we do a lot of due diligence to define what supply chain sustainability means to us, which is really managing your environmental and social impact uh, on across our networks, which is like suppliers, manufacturers, distributors, and even like customers in line, like the end use. So I think like, as we grow, uh, as more and more brands are coming through, your skincare is already, as anything with skincare benefits or like sexy ingredients, I think it's also table sticks. I think the next big thing is sustainability. And that is, a, I think, quite a lot more difficult to innovate because there are a lot of limitations to it. So, so yeah, so I think that's like the next big thing. That's interesting. Talk me through what the process is to really make sure that your entire supply chain is sustainable like what what is that process you obviously have like the family connection there I know for example that even just looking for trying to find post-consumer recycled plastic is like quite difficult yes yeah how do you do all this so I think the easiest is actually packaging so when we started we were all right let's start with packaging because like Mm -hmm. at minimum I like if you're creating a product you need to think about the end life so like how is that piece of plastic that you're creating or a piece of cardboard that you're creating actually contributes to you know climate change so i was like all right well at a minimum i want to use if i'm creating a new product or a new piece of 
thingy, hopefully I can use something that has it was from sort of a waste, right? So what we do is that we start with post-consumer recycled plastic. What that means is that we use plastic that has been, you know, disposed and we use the components of it and it makes it into something new. So there is a circular economy like a basis of it, right? Then we're like, okay, well, there's the plastic tube. What about, you know, the labels? Or like, how about your, you know, unit cartons? Then you're like, okay, all of our unit cartons is like FFC certified. Um, we use soy ink as an example. All of our laminates are biodegradable. We got all the way down to like really nitty gritty, like our stickers wow. are dissolvable. Uh, all of our things are uh, certified. So we're like, okay, we, if we want to go down that route, we're going to go all in. So that's on the packaging side. And then, of course, like we want to explore like refillables. Uh, we want to explore you know, paper packaging and aluminiums. But of course, like there is limitations on what we do in sunscreen because sunscreen has an active ingredient that is not like it needs to house in a, a non-sunlight environment so that it doesn't doesn't degrade so maybe in other formats like maybe bombs or like some other liquids may work well uh, or like solids usually work much well they're much better in like paper or alum but like for what we do it's the stability is going to be an issue so it's like learning all of those you know bits and pieces on what my limitations are and what i can do at my best is like okay this is what i can offer right now and i'll see i'll, I'll continue to do research and innovate so that's just on the packaging side right then you go into the ingredient side so ingredients side for me it's like well i want to be able to find sustainably sourced ingredients to start with so that's really hard so we're like okay Active ingredients for sunscreen is, you know, you've got your, uh, you know, organic and there's your, your, your physical, but like, what if we start innovating on the other ingredients as well? And like, look at the, do the due diligence of raw material supplies. So what we started to do is to incorporate upcycle ingredients. So what is exact, what exactly is like upcycle ingredients? Basically, I think it's the new frontier of sustainable skincare. And so what we do is like, we save commercial byproducts from like plants flowers, um, fruits, vegetables that usually are discarded and or like sort of like become like commodity waste. And what you do is that you give them a second lease of life. So in the traditional manufacturing process, like nearly every step yields waste. So it's like from cultivating plant, you know, extracting the plant or just waste from making stuff. So what we want to do is to find ways to upcycle those ingredients so that waste doesn't end up in a landfill and can actually be transformed and utilized. So I know it's really nerdy, but like we started off with oh, our cleanser. Thank you. But like most people don't care, but I care a lot about <laughs> it. So I was like, I'm going to make all my products to have an upcycle ingredient. So we're actually about to launch our um, mineral sunscreen called Rose from Above. So this is embargo for April 18th. So excited about this. So this is Beautiful. what we, we've reformulated our mineral sunscreen base. So what it has is like hero ingredient is actually upcycle rose. So what we did is that we found, you know, uh, a supplier that's able to actually use um, exhausted rose, um, you know, so basically it's a rose water distilled from exhausted rose petals that bows like awesome skin priming, skin priming benefits. Like, so what it does is reduce fine lines, it retains moisture, but the product, like the, the oil itself came from a sustainable process called upcycling. So what we do mm. is that like every single ingredient that we're going to go for our hero ingredient needs to have that component. And that's how we're doing PD from now on. So I think it's like really interesting because on the supplier side, they're also hurriedly trying to do innovation and like create these things. And like on the company level or the brand level, it's like finding those innovation and actually incorporating it into PD at an early stage, which is that that makes sense for your brand. You can't just like throw some stuff in, but it needs to have like a long, like a longevity to it, or at least a long-term plan of why you're doing it. So I think that's really important. How do you find these suppliers? Where are you going to source 
folks. I mean, my PD, my, my PD person does it. So <laughs> my yeah. product lead is like, she is a cosmetic chemist. She came from Shiseido, like she knows her stuff. So, um, and I invigorated her and be like, we care about sustainability. Let's find the most sustainable source. And she's like, okay, I'm going to get a thousand calls. We did it. And then we're like, oh my God, this is the innovation set us because because of her previous relationship, she felt like we were able to find suppliers that are able to show us innovation where maybe it launches only 2024 or you know, much later on and at least be able to give us a test, you know, test batch, whatever it is, and actually try it on our batch formula. So it's like really cool to have that relationship with the supplier, the raw material and uh, ingredient supplies and be able to do that. Wow, like seeing all innovation incorporated into it's not just like randomly put things together, you know. Wow, that's so interesting. I have to ask, and I'm I'm really curious about, you know, you said that you started in 2018. You kind mm-hmm. of had like a, a relaunch in t- uh, 2020, which I'm guessing is like post the um, accelerated program that you did. How were you, I know, I know you're bootstrapped as well, and this is an expensive kind of process to to find all of these suppliers and to be really intentional around sustainability and while also creating your own formulas. How were you funding the business like really early on? Was this, did you have some friends and family money in there? Were you just putting in your own savings? Like how did you think about that in the early days? I mean, unfortunately or fortunately I had savings, but it's obviously depleted it. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, so at the beginning it was hard because like, that's why I need to make every buck work for me because I don't, I have, I have all everything to lose. So I'm not like, you know, just kind of winging it and I'm not making Mm -hmm. small amounts. So when I started the brand, I four SKUs to start with and then MOQs are so high. Like I, I don't have a choice to fail. Like I just cannot fail. So I think that because of the table stakes involved, so I'm super careful on how I distribute, how I build the foundations of the brand so that there is scalability. And that's why we're at this really nice, comfortable place where I still don't have like institutional investors and we'll be cash flow positive, which is like, like we're in a wow. really nice place where we don't have to worry too much because of the clients that we have. Right. But of course, like, you know, like I think not a lot of people have a lot of like, like, you know, a fortunate or unfortunate, whatever it is, like maybe it's a different circumstance, but I always think that you can start within your scope. And I always think bootstrapping is the best way to do so. I think raising a lot of money to start a brand has its pros and cons. I think the pros, obviously you can build a team really quickly. You can hire the best agencies and then you can come up with something really fast, but maybe sometimes doing it the hard way, which is what we're all doing over here in your podcast is, you know, you want to test it, have a product market fit before you scale. And I think that would build a much longer, like there's a much bigger longevity to something like that than to just throw money at the problem, see if it sticks, and then it might just like crash and burn. Wow, that is awesome advice. I want to shift into chatting about some of the tools you've mentioned, Notion and Asana, but if there's anything else that you're using in your business, whether it's, you know, someone that you think is great for capturing reviews or a Shopify plugin, something that is kind of helping power the business. Um, We use Okendo. If you're talking about reviews, I think there's just two Mm -hmm. players actually in the market. So Okendo has been really nice. They have a widget that you can show the reviews on the landing page. And you can obviously share it with your um, uh, wholesale partners, so on and so forth. And then for email, I think everybody uses Klaviyo these days. So Klaviyo has more flexibility than the other competitor. And it's really great for segmentation. Um, We actually haven't started SMS marketing, but I know Klaviyo has something on the back end that you can start with that. But we were looking to experiment it next month, actually. So I can let you know how that's going. And uh, 
I mean, our business is so wholesale focused that our D2C tech stack is pretty lame. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, honestly, it's not as sophisticated as a lot of my uh, peers who are like make, you know, like they, their entire 80% of the business come from D2C. Ours is like very balanced. We're like 50-50. You know, most, actually now it's 60-40, like most of it is wholesale. And there's a bit of a mix of like indie channels. We have indie retailers. We have we have, um, you know, Asia retailers, and then we have the wholesale accounts, and then we have, you know, like a little bit of D2C, and then now we have Amazon. So what I try to do is to, I call it, I mean, super nerdy. It's like, you know, I want a good cash conversion cycle, meaning um, I don't want to get locked up. I don't want single retailer risk, and I want, uh, you know, good cash conversion cycle. What that means is that I don't want to rely on one person so that if that person mm-hmm. pulls the plug, I'm dead. So then what we want to do is to diversify our revenue streams so that, like even if one big thing get plugged out, like you you have other places that can actually fill your revenue. And then the second about cash conversion cycles. So you think that Target and Ulta, they're all great and all, but they pay really slowly. So you need to mm-hmm. know and manage your cash flow so that when you have those moments where you're fronting the money you're and then you sold it, but you have to wait for the people to pay you back, then you don't have that cash to be able to actually do your um SGNA or the operating expenses. So then you need to be able to manage your expenses so that and be able to time your income coming in if you don't have an investor to be able to not have that like, you know, this like cliff mm-hmm. and you have this cash hole and then you only have, you know, maybe you have to wait 60 days, 90 days, but your your staff needs to get paid. People needs to get paid. So you need to be able to learn how to mitigate those risks and fill those holes so that you consistently have enough money to be able to survive. And are you filling those holes by basically making sure that you are, yeah, actually, how are you filling those holes? Is it just around like the different order time and the payment schedule for the different retailers that you're working with? Is it that the e-com's big enough? Like, how do you do that? So, I mean, I think one thing you can do, you can start with a supplier, right? So you can like, you know, you know, negotiate better payment terms. Of course, it it really is hard at the beginning because nobody's going to give you uh, favorable payment terms until you scale. So we're at that place where we're like, hey. We've been together for a while, you know, you got to cut us some slack. That's cool. But I think it's hard at the beginning. So a little bit harder. So then, then it's more like, you know, having an Amazon or Shopify business where obviously the payment comes immediately. So have enough of that to be able to mitigate those risks and really just controlling your expenses. The most important part It's like, don't hire or like, don't spend the money if you can't, like, if you aren't unable to do so. And, and at least if you do want to front the money to fuel your growth, you need to be able to have calculated risks so that you're not overspending for a future revenue number that may not actually exist. So you need to be really safe on your uh, forecast. But of course, again, like because I'm in a bootstrap company, it's really different. So if you're a funded company, it's a completely different way of seeing things where they're like growth stage. So you like splash money, right? And you throw a lot of money and just see what sticks. So it's a really, and then you obviously hire the best, spend the best, and then see how it goes. And of course, your trajectory of growth would be, you know, like much faster. But obviously, your chances of failure is also really high. So it's like, I guess it's like understand your risk profile. So as you can probably see, like I am relatively risk averse <laughs> or at least very <laughs> careful. I, I believe in sustainable growth over like uh, hockey stick growth. So it's just a different mm-hmm. way of building a business. So it's, there's no right or wrong answer. Like some people love it to go all in. I'm just like, I want, I, I'd rather build a brand that lost and it's sustainable. So I don't crash and burn. Wow. I would love to just go to a, um, 
business class that you teach. Could you just do a workshop with us? <laughs> I mean, it's not, I mean, like if you tell I them love the way that you think like, about it. You have such good, like you've both got the breadth and also like the level of detail of understanding around like the different areas of your business. And it, it just, the way that you are approaching everything like so intentionally, I think is really impressive. And yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people can learn from it. Awesome. The last question that I wanted to ask you, and I ask everyone who comes on the show, it's just for a resource. And it, usually it's a book or a podcast or something that the founders who come on li- listen to or read, and it's just kind of like helped them be better leaders in their businesses. Is there something that you could recommend? I just talk to really amazing people, actually. Like I always look up to yeah, actually, that's weird that I don't have a recommend. I guess I'll start. I need to start like uh, listening to all of your podcasts because I'm sure I'm gonna learn so much out of it. But I just don't have time to listen. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of like resource recommendation, but like inspiration. Go resource know. recommendations. We love if it's like more of a tactical, tangible kind of tool. Let's 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 do it. People love that kind of stuff. Um, like what are the things that I've been using that's really effective? Like it's some of them just doesn't apply here. Like you know, uh, like factoring, like like boring stuff, uh, like pure <laughs> financing and and like forecasting models. Like it's not exciting. Um, this okay. is not boring stuff. This is hard. This is the information that's hard to get. This is the stuff that you can't Google. So if you can like share anything like that, that's helpful. Oh, I guess like um, like debt financing. I don't know if people care about learning about that, but like there's a lot of ways for you to raise money. Uh, it doesn't have to be through equity. It can be through debt. So you have ways. There's like a couple of ways to do it. There's like factoring. Um, there's revolving credit. There's debt financing. So oh God, I'm hearing myself. It's so boring. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, like, it's not. Yeah, so factoring means PO financing, meaning if you have an order, you can actually borrow on top of it. So if, if your creditor, if the buyer has, you know, let's say, you know, an A grade, we call them A grade, you know, buyer, which is kind of like a target and alter, you can borrow up to 90% of your purchasing order. So you can actually borrow money if you get an order and be like, hey, person or bank or whatever, like, I need some money to be able to fund my cash flow. Here's my invoice, take take them and, and front me the money before it gets into my uh, account. So that's factoring. And then you've got revolving credit, which is, you know, it's kind of like accent as like a credit card so but you apply it through your accounts receivables or your existing inventory so then what you can do is that okay well if uh the the creditor or like the uh the revolving credit you know facility would be able to evaluate how big your business is and then they will give you a credit line so that's like another way to access cash and then the third is debt finance so debt finance is a little bit harder because you need to have quite a bit of top line for for the facility to work for you so generally i think you need at least in where I'm from, like you need at least a couple of million dollars of top line consistently and a, quite a few purchasing orders from the same client to be able to access that facility. But like once you get that access as, as well, like you can actually borrow quite a lot without having to give out any equity. So I, I just think there's just so many ways to find money and it doesn't have to be this whole sexy freaking insto, insto sorry mm-hmm. institutional investors and all that stuff but of course like if you have friends and family that's always just the best way to go about at the very beginning and you know like if you have friends who have who really believe in your cause and be able to support you at the very beginning like that's a really nice way to start that's great advice I actually did want to talk about something else I just look, looked down at my notes while you were chatting there and you're one of the few beauty founders who aren't you're not like in your TikTok videos, you're not like fronting the brand. 
talk me through like a why <laughs> I'm sure I understand why and also like be what, what you're doing instead because I think um, a lot of founders don't want to do it but they just see it driving sales and they kind of feel like trapped into this cycle of being the chief content creator and the face of the brand as well as trying to run the business on the back end. Well, I mean, I'm all about, as you can probably tell, I'm all about maximizing my productivity and that is not the best use of my time. <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. that's really, I mean, yeah, I can film content all day, but like I have so many other things that I need to do and surely I should have used my time to do the big stuff, not making content. That's just my choice. But the other end of the spectrum, which is my personal level, that my, my husband will probably divorce me if I do that. <laughs> I have a conservative <laughs> South African husband who was like, you cannot do this. It is so embarrassing for the family. You're not going to go on camera. I was like, I agree. That is true. So I'm very like relatively private person and like just talking like to a really big audience is like one-on-one -on -one with you is really nice, but like with a big audience, it's like, I can't do this, you know, and yeah. I just, like, it's not my thing. And it's not like, for everyone. Yeah. And I think there's, I think there's a lot of brands or a lot of people get pressured into doing it because it is the fastest way for you to grow at the very beginning. But then if you don't innovate, because you're not infinitely scalable, like, so you need to find ways to scale this. And that's why you get stuck because like, oh shit. Oh, oh crap. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, you can't scale can yourself. Oh, you can say, okay. So yeah, you can't mm -hmm. actually scale yourself. So if content is such a big part of your uh, revenue driver, how are you going to scale that? It's not possible. Like mm -hmm. you can, there's a cap, there's always a cap, right? So, but it will give you a much faster head start. Cause if I had started with my face, probably it will be a lot faster, but I would probably be very tired. Like I just yeah. can't keep up with it. I just like, it's not for me. Okay. So what, you know, if you're not, if you're not doing it in the early days, like what does, what does your content creator kind of, um, community look like? Do you have a social media manager who's creating the content? Do you have kind of like an army of content creators that you have, you know, that you're paying for videos? Like, how do you think about it? If, if it's not you? I mean, I'm still figuring it out at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> like we're good at going to wholesale, like sorry, I, we're good, good at the business side, but I'm still figuring out the marketing side at the moment. So at the moment I've told you about, we started with influences and then building those relationships and then like sort of like giving, um, excuse me, uh, giving opportunities to maybe like, you know, providing internships so that we can get a uh, cast intern, uh, uh, content creators to help us out. And then just having a network of people instead of just one face, like I think some people really like that singular voice, but I don't think it's necessary. Some brands can do it really well. You have a constant Rolodex of cast that's coming in and out, but actually shows inclusivity as well. And you have different mm -hmm. points of view. So maybe you, maybe some people resonate with your face, but or some people resonate with my friends, my face. So maybe there is a test and learn approach that you can do so that you have a variety. So it's not pigeonholed, but of course it's like, there's different ways of doing things. Maybe you're really good at, you know, this particular cohort with your face and you should just double down on it. And maybe you can find somebody who looks like you, speaks like you and get that, <laughs> right? So, but it's hard. Yeah. So I think um, that's why we still struggle because it's so hard to find somebody who is your brand without being you. So how yeah. do you do that? And no matter how many times I cast that person, it's just not hundred percent, but like, because I made that choice, I was like, all right, I have to have somebody who's not perfect and just like roll with it and make and diversify yeah. right yeah and figure it out over time too I'm sure yeah this was such a great conversation I think this is the longest podcast I've ever done just because oh you gosh. were amazing <laughs> I'm so sorry like it took like an hour no you're amazing 
like I just I just kept having questions for you. I think everyone's going to really love this episode. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you.